musicians. That was sweet. I really appreciate that. God bless you guys. Thank you again. Now, it's time to return our attention to the preaching of God's Word. Please take your Bible and turn to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. For those of you who are visiting our church this morning, it's our custom to preach the Bible verse by verse and to explain it and apply it. And uh, we've come to uh, the closing section of Galatians. The closing sections, the final uh, seven verses, uh, verses 11 to 18. Galatians, Galatians 6, and I'm going to read verses 11 to the end of the book. Paul writes, See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised, simply so that they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves, but they desire to have you circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh. But may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision is anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And those who will walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause trouble for me, for I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brethren. Amen. The message today and next week is entitled, Life Long Lessons from Galatians. Lifelong Lessons from Galatians. Today is part one. To glean what God has always intended us to glean from his holy, inspired, inerrant word, it's incumbent upon us to understand as much as possible the biblical author and where he's coming from. After about six months in Paul's letter to the Colossians, and then ten more months, and Paul's letter to the Galatians, we've arrived at the final two messages of Paul's letter to the Galatians. And by now, I trust that you have become very well acquainted with the style of Paul's writings. His style is first deeply theological, first deeply theological, and then sharply practical. Now, if I can put on my teacher hat for a second, Go ahead and pull up that slide. I want you to understand clearly the structure of Paul's writings. First theological, then practical. This is how God superintended his authors to write. And this is why. You start out with the scripture. You start out at the foundation. What is my authority? And then from there you get to exegesis. It simply comes from ex, the Greek preposition to mean out of, and Jesus means to lead out of. So we are taking out of the text what the original author intended, and you do that by considering the historical background, the context, the language, and such. 
And then only from there do you get your biblical theology. In other words, what does Paul have to say about salvation? Then you get your systematic theology, which is what the whole Bible says about it. And then, only then, at the very top, you get your practical theology, what to do. You will have false and misleading practical theology without these first four levels. Example, Jeremiah 29.11. Now, how many of you have heard this verse? For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope. How many of you have ever thought that applies to you? It's okay, you can raise your hand. Admit it. Admit it. I admit it. And how many times maybe have you even used this verse to give hope to someone else? Well, with good intentions. Yes, me too. But if we consider the scripture and the exegesis, that verse does not apply to 21st century American Gentile Christians. The verse applies to Israel in exile. So first you get the scripture, the exegesis, and then you get to the practical theology. And that is how Paul writes. He writes from the very beginning with a theology. Who is Jesus? What is salvation? What is justification? And then he gets to the part we live by the Spirit. To go straight from application without the first four steps will mislead you and it will fail you. Because how horrible is it for somebody to be told that, hey man, things are tough for you right now. But guess what? Jeremiah 29 11 says, God has plans to give you a bright hope. And then they get cancer. And then they experience a tragedy in their life. All of a sudden they say, hey, this Christian with the Bible said that God was going to give me a, a life of hope. And now I'm living this tragedy. What's up with that? So either they're going to question God even more, or they're going to throw out the Bible. You see? You see why it's so important to understand how to study the Bible? Well, you, guess what? You don't need a semester-long hermeneutics class or biblical interpretation class to understand this. Because that's how Paul writes. He writes theologically, and then the second half of the book is practical. You can't get it backwards. So, Paul's writings is intensely and deeply theological and then practical. His writing is also bold, yet gentle in spirit. He's blunt to the point, yet he's comprehensive. He is condemning, but forgiving. He is very simple, yet profound. He is convicting yet comforting and complex enough for the lifelong student at the Ph.D. level. Yet he's simple enough for a young child to understand. That's Paul. And now we've come to the end of a very unique section and a very unique passage of Scripture. At the end of this fiery epistle, Paul closes with an urgent message. And a message that's just as urgent for you 
as it was for the Galatians 2,000 years ago. In Galatians 6, verses 11 and following, we can glean five lifelong lessons about the Christian life. Five lifelong lessons about the Christian life. Next slide, please. And since the points are a little bit more wordy than normal, I decided to go with the PowerPoint. So you can follow along with me. Up to this point, Paul has already been through plenty of life-changing experiences. We just read one of them in Acts 14. A couple examples here. He experienced a life-changing lesson when he met Jesus face-to-face on the road to Damascus. You say that's pretty life-changing? He literally became blinded and had to be led by the hand like a child after his conversion. He was thrown into the hot seat at the Jerusalem Council as a, as a brand new convert. He was being violently persecuted by his former colleagues. He was feared. He was a feared stranger to Gentile Christians. You know, it'd be, it would be like you know, one of the leaders of ISIS coming into our church this morning after being converted. And much, much more Paul learned as we'll see later in our exposition. And now after having condemned the false brethren, the Judaizers in chapter 1, after having sternly rebuked the Galatians for their foolish gullibility in chapters 2 to 4, and having instructed them on how to live a spirit-filled life in the church in chapters 5 and 6, Paul now turns a corner and begins the end of this inspired letter in verse 11, which is where we find the first lifelong lesson that you need to learn this morning from the book of Galatians. Now, for those of you who are visiting, or for those of you who have missed some in the past 10 months, (laughs) this this is basically a summary series. A summary series. So, so this is going to make sense for those of you who have the whole picture here. I'm going to do my best to fill in the blanks. But after studying Galatians, Paul reveals to us some, some lifelong lessons. The first one in verse 11 is that your Christian life should involve being passionate for Jesus. Your Christian life should involve being passionate for Jesus. In verse 11, he says, See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Put it another way, this is Paul's passion for the cross. And I'll explain to you why. A little little historical background is helpful here. According to the custom at the time, Paul had, had employed the service of amanuensis. An amanuensis. Everybody... That word sounds funny and strange, right? It just means secretary. It just means somebody who would dictate what you're saying. Or a secretary. He would employ an amanuensis to write down what he wanted. But, as we see here in verse 11, at a minimum, he takes up the pen or the stylus and does it himself. Thus, he's given an urgent, passion stamp of his approval personal stamp of approval. So this verse is expressive of how emphatic he is regarding everything he's communicating in this letter. He goes to his man and says, give me that stylus, I'm going to finish it myself. And, un- and, and this letter, unlike many other Pauline epistles, does not end with a short afterthought or a light commendation or even an encouraging prayer or benediction. 
he ends this with a summary of the entire letter, which tells us that he had such a fire in his bones regarding the gospel of grace. Because this book is all about the gospel of grace. He is as passionate as anyone can be when it comes to the doctrines he's laid out in this letter, namely, justification by... Let me hear it. Say it again. Oh, I love that. Music to my ears. Justification by faith alone was, is the theme, the main point of this book. Now, just, just real quick, I want to just bring to you uh, a recall what we've covered so far. A little bit more in depth. And this is necessary so you can understand what Paul is passionate about. Verse 1, or chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, he comes out the gate with a very heavy theological truth up front. See? Oh, it's gone. But the theology and then the practical, right? Here, here's an example. He says in verse 3, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be the glory forevermore. Amen. Now, in about 10 seconds, let me show you what I did when I was studying this. Just a few observations, just right off, right off the surface. And in those two verses, he, he brings up the doctrine of the grace of God the Lordship of Jesus Christ, substitutionary atonement, redemption, the fall, the sovereignty of God, and the glory of God. You see why I say that's a heavy theological statement just right at the gate. We could spend hours just unpacking those two verses. And then right after that, he, 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 he leads after that with a very condemning and, and poignant statement. In verses, chapter 1, verse 6 to 9, he says, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. So he's indicting them, which is not really another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel, or messenger from heaven, should preach to you another gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be, what? Anathema. That's a transliteration. Anathema means to be damned. Let that man be consigned to hell. Pretty heavy, isn't it? See, so you can't, you can't go to Galatians 5 talking about the fruits of the Spirit, without that. Because without understanding the grace of God, the Lordship of Christ, the atonement, the redemption, the sovereignty of God, it's going to be a band-aid, right? And then Galatians 2.16, the heart of the letter, which is the very heart of the gospel, a man is not justified by, a man is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Faith. Galatians 2.20, a very popular verse that speaks to the substitutionary death of Christ and the union we have with him through faith. I have been crucified with Christ. 
It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. That's some heavy theology right there. That's where he starts. Then we're still, we're still here in the theology here. Galatians 3, verse 13. Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the law. You know what? To understand the gospel, you need to understand the law. Because it's only through understanding the law that you understand your need for a Savior. Amen? He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Having become a curse for us, for it, as, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Wow. And then we get to chapter 4, verse 4 and 5. Paul talks about how the man, Christ Jesus, was sent to redeem the sinner by faith so that we can become adopted sons. Doctrine of adoption. Paul wrote, but when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Okay, born under the law. What's that mean? You've got to understand the theology of the Old Covenant to get that. So that we might redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive the adoptions as sons. You and I are adopted. We were once children of, of the devil. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we can become sons of God. So I could go on and on. I could preach for the next 45 minutes and just do a review of Galatians. But I think you get the picture. In the first four chapters of Galatians, it's all theology. It's all about the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's all about being saved from the demands of the law, which is death. It's all about grace alone through faith alone and Christ alone. One commentator says that to understand this is to understand Galatians, and more than that is to understand the gospel. So my beloved friends, I hope you understand the gospel in a much deeper sense after having gone through this book. What does it mean to be justified in God's sight? Because that, the answer to that question is, is the most important question you could answer. Paul answers it for us. And then he tells us the effect of it. So this is why Paul writes with such large letters in his own handwriting. He is passionate about the truth of the gospel, and he can't get any more serious about it. And if you believe that, then you should be passionate about it too. Amen? So the first lifelong lesson is for you to be passionate about Jesus. Now the second lifelong lesson is in verses 12 and 13. The Christian life could involve being afflicted for Jesus. The Christian life could involve being afflicted for Jesus. Let's read. Verse 12. Those who desire to make a good choice in the flesh... Just a long way of seeing the Judaizers. Try to compel you to be circumcised. Why did they do that? Because they told the Galatians that they could be justified by, by being circumcised, which is just an addition to the gospel. 
They said that in order for a Christian to be con- to be in, excuse me, in order for a pagan to be converted to Christianity, they had to be circumcised. In other words, they had to become a Jew first. Remember back in Acts 15, Jerusalem Council, where Paul gives a summary of in Galatians 2. It says, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So for them, the Judaizers, those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh, in verse 12, they taught and they believed falsely that salvation was the cross plus circumcision. Understand something very clearly here. There is a continual temptation for the church of Jesus Christ to turn the gospel into the cross plus something else. It can be a sacrament or a social issue. It can be a duty or a deed. So for the gospel to remain true and pure, listen, it must stand alone. It is the ultimate epitome of human pride and arrogance to dream up something to be added to the cross. So we must be extremely discerning about the gospel. Extremely. Extremely sensitive. If you hear anything that smells like faith plus works, there should be a violent, loud, shaky siren go off in your mind. If any pope, priest, bishop, preacher or teacher gets up and says anything but repent and believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved what should you do? Say anathema! No, I'm just kidding. Understand that that is a counterfeit gospel. Now, why did these Judaizers really want these precious Galatians to be circumcised? Did they really care for these people? No. Look, th- look back in verse 12. Simply so that they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. And we're going to unpack this. Here's the reason why they compromise. They don't want to cause trouble for themselves. They didn't want to make anyone mad, these Judaizers. Because Teaching a false gospel spared them from any persecution. Why? Because they removed the controversy of the cross. I'll explain that. But first let me explain persecuted. They did not want to be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Persecuted it simply means to pursue with repeated acts of enmity, to follow, to go after, to press hard after with the intent to gain something. That's persecution. Now think for a second. Who were those that would have persecuted the Judaizers if they preached the cross? The Romans? Who thinks the Romans? No, no, you don't even think the Romans, those dirty Gentiles? You don't think they would be persecuting these Judaizers? You're right. The Jews, the Jews loved to persecute. The Jews were experts in persecution. And Paul knew it very well. Because he himself was, to borrow a contemporary vernacular term, a radicalized extremist. Paul was a radicalized extremist. 
if Paul were alive today, before his conversion, he would be the one on CNN right now. Because he literally went around dragging Christians out of their homes. He wrote, he confessed that he persecuted the way to the death. On the way to Damascus, said he was breathing threats. He was, he was livid about Christians. So thank God that Jesus intervened. Amen? Then we also think back to the first Christian martyr, Stephen. Who were the perpetrators? It wasn't the dirty Gentiles. It was the Sanhedrin, the religious Jewish, Jewish leaders, who thought they were serving the true God. So the Judaizers didn't want to be persecuted by their colleagues. So that was motive enough to compel Gentile believers to get circumcised, which is a false gospel. This false teachers still do to this very day to avoid persecution. They compromise and they do not preach the offense of the cross. What is this cross that Paul is talking about? Okay, well, from the very beginning of our faith, the cross has been a universally recognized symbol of Christianity. Why? Because the Lamb of God was slaughtered on a cross. So when we preach the message of the cross, what we mean is the full story. Not just one part or component. We mean by the cross, we mean the entire work of divine redemption that Jesus' death on the cross accomplished. Here in this context, he's not talking about the just the wooden cross. He's talking about the message of the cross, the story of the cross, what it represents. And there is no gospel without that message. There is no gospel without the bloody, painful execution of Jesus. And that's the picture that Paul's wanted to get here. The cross was the electric chair of the first century. The Romans refined it and perhaps made it into the most cruel and agonizing means of execution in world history. In fact, it was Constantine who later outlawed it. But in Jesus' time, in Paul's time, it, it just wasn't intended to kill. It was intended to torture and ultimately humiliate, because it's evident due to the fact that these uh, condemned criminals were stripped naked before being tied or nailed to the cross. It was considered to be the most shameful and disgraceful way to die. Crucifixion was so gruesome that the Roman government reserved it only for non-Roman citizens, people who were considered special enemies of the state, who were then to be made examples of as a deterrent to, re to rebellion. But listen to this. That symbol, the cross, which is a symbol of absolute horror, became the symbol of hope and life for Christians. Why? Because Christ suffered and died on a cross as full and final sacrifice to save them from death and sin. So, don't, okay, we'll go back to exegesis here. When you read the cross, don't think of a shiny piece of lumber. Don't think of a well-cut, crafted, polished cross 
that you see hanging up in the typical evangelical church. Paul is wanting you to picture a horrific, horrible, gruesome instrument of pain, suffering, and death. Doesn't sound like a very fluffy message, does it? But that is the cross. That is what it took. That was the wage of our sin. Your sin was so costly that it took the perfect Son of God to be nailed and, and, and pierced to a piece of wood reserved for a common criminal. That was the only way that your limitless record of sin could be wiped away. It was his death on the cross that provided the sacrifice that we all so desperately need to be saved from the wrath to come. Now that's the cross. That's an offensive message. Who wants to hear that they have sinned against the holy God, an infinite God, therefore they deserve hell, and they need to repent, die to self, and follow Jesus? Who, who wants that? Who wants to hear that? The Jews didn't. The Greeks didn't. Because the cross is offensive. And it will bring, look, as Paul says, I'm not making this up, it will bring persecution. Remember back in Galatians 5, verse 11, Paul said, But I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? Then the stumbling block, some translations say offense, the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 23, But we preach Christ crucified, to the cross, to the Jews a stumbling block, to the Gentiles foolishness. To the Jew, it was so maddening to hear that their God would soup to the level of dying on a cross. To the Greek Gentile, it was just a stupid message. You Christians worship a dead man on a cross? That's silly. In fact, as I was doing my research, I came across an ancient depiction of a crucifix. And you know what it was? It was a depiction of a donkey being crucified. And it had an inscription on the bottom, something about the Christian God. So it's offensive, and the gospel message, it's stupid. That's the way the Greeks thought. And guess what? How many, how many of you have run into people in your own life that think the gospel message is stupid? Yeah, you guys believe in a man who created everything, but yet he, he died on a cross? What a, what, what a weak and pathetic God. So it's offensive, but to some people it's stupid. So we have to embrace and accept the fact that there is an offense to the cross. There is an offense to the cross. Last week, I started reading a biography of the father of the English Bible, William Tyndale. And there's a few men that ever existed like Tyndale because he was uniquely gifted and skilled in academics, namely linguistics. 
at the ripe old age of 12, he began studying at Oxford. At the ripe old age of 18, he graduated with a bachelor's. And at 21, he graduated with a master's as a university-trained linguist. From Oxford, it wasn't good enough, so he went to Cambridge. And it was there at Cambridge, here's our church history lesson for the, for the week. Cambridge, that's there, he learned the influence of the Protestant Reformation. Uh-oh. Here comes trouble. So at the age of 27, he stepped away from the world of academia and took time to give careful consideration to the truths he learned at Cambridge about theology. And he came to this conclusion. Listen up. It was impossible to establish the lay people any truth except the scripture were laid before their eyes in their mother tongue. And with this admission, he pronounced death on himself. Because it was a capital offense to translate the word of God to the common language of the people. So it was game on. He began the ambitious task of translating the Bible into English. And that became his life's goal. But guess what? You think Rome said, yeah, that's a good job, Billy. Go ahead and do that. You think Rome said that? He was met with fierce opposition as he sought to seek official authorization. And he was vehemently denied and forbidden to do it. But, like any tried and true reformer, what did he do? He defied the church, and he goes into hiding. At age 30, he begins translating and publishing the Bible in the original language so that people like you and me can feast on the words of life. And for the first time in human history, understand it. Now, fast forward a little bit. I don't have time to give you the whole picture. I'd love to. He did succeed at smuggling Bibles into England. And what do you think was the response of the church and state? I'll give you a hint. It starts with a P. Violent persecution. There's few men who was persecuted like he was. He was betrayed like Jesus was betrayed. A man pretending to be his friend literally led him into a back alley and he was arrested by soldiers. He was imprisoned in a cold, wet cell. He was tied to a wooden stake, strangled with an iron chain, ignited with fire, and get this, that wasn't enough. He was blown to bits by gunpowder. All because he wanted you to know that Jesus is enough. He wanted you to know that the cross is enough. He wanted people like you and I to know beyond a shadow of a doubt what Jesus said. He wanted us to know that Jesus said, it is finished. 
He wanted you to know the book of Galatians. To know that you can have assurance and hope of heaven and not by bowing down to a pope. He wanted you to know that a man is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. He died so we can know that. And the church at the time persecuted him to death just because he wanted to preach the message of the cross. Now that should move you. Should move you. Those who don't preach the cross are not identified with the cross and thus are not truly with Christ. One notable Christian author wrote, when the cross is abolished and the rage of tyrants and heretics ceases on one side and all things are in peace, this is a sure token that the pure doctrine of God's word is taken away. In other words, if you want to have peace with all men, you just put the Bible away and say what people want to hear. If you want everyone to approve you in every way, you just preach and believe the religion with no cross. And I guarantee you'll be the most popular kid in school. Verse 13. For, that little word for, just a little conjunction that further elaborates on what Paul just said in verse 12. In other words, an elaboration on the false motives of Judaizers. Those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves. They were hypocrites. They were legalists who were lawless. They were preaching something that they didn't even believe or practice themselves. Because hypocrites always have a self-centered motive. Don't they? Verse 13 again. But they desire to have you circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh. In other words, Paul's saying they just want a notch in their belt. They want to have a reason to boast about getting the Galatians to mutilate themselves. They wanted to brag about their ministerial successes. Flesh in this context, it refers to the physical flesh. The Galatians, I'm not going to go into detail about that. First, the physical flesh that was affected by circumcision, not necessarily as in other contexts, uh, the sinful desire of the natural man. It's important to point out here. These Judaizers were going around saying, look how many Gentiles I've convinced to become circumcised. With no true genuine concern for their soul. You know, it's the equivalent of churches going around saying, look how many people got saved in my church. Look how many baptisms we have this year. Or like someone sending home a missions letter with the headline of hundreds of Gentiles circumcised. You know, true ministry success, right? It's not dependent upon numbers, right? True gospel ministry is not dependent on how many professions of faith we get. If you think that's true, then you're thinking a lot more like a Judaizer than Paul. True ministry success 
has to do with spiritual growth, not numerical growth. But Judaizers thought the more Gentiles I can get circumcised, the better. So they could boast about it to their colleagues and escape persecution. Now, lesson here. Here's a lesson for us. This applies to me as well. It's possible to be very religious, very active in church, and to be totally morally and spiritually bankrupt. I saw this very early on in my conversion. But guess what? I saw it even before that in myself. I saw that I was the guy who would go to church on Sunday. I was the guy who would go on a singles retreat. I was the guy who would go to the pastor's house for dinner. What kind of single soldier would turn down a free meal? Especially a home-cooked meal. Yet my heart was 100% spiritually bankrupt. You couldn't tell on the outside. I boasted in my church attendance. I boasted in my sorry sense of morality. And I boasted in my religious upbringing. Similarly, these spiritual bankrupt Judaizers boasted, not in the grace of God, but in their outward, external religiosity. And what did that boasting get them? Got them something. Got them something in this life. It got them acceptance. It got them prestige. It got them accolades. It got them applause from their fellow Jews. Now let me ask you something. What do you boast in? Have you ever boasted about something to make yourself feel accepted by unbelievers or false brethren, to avoid persecution, or to appear outwardly successful? Very convicting, isn't it? So the Christian life. The first lesson that we need to learn from Galatians is that our life, our Christian life, should involve being passionate for Jesus. Paul made that abundantly clear in this passage by doing something way out of the ordinary. He concluded this letter with large letters written by his own hand. He had something to say and he wanted to say it himself. That's passion. Secondly, the Christian life could involve being afflicted for Jesus. We must understand that the preaching of the cross has always invited persecution. Sometimes to death, like our brother William Tyndale. Sometimes to injury. Sometimes to loss of a job. Sometimes to a loss of a friend. Sometimes to a loss of a family member that you love. But if you preach and believe the cross, affliction will come in some way. You know, in America, we've, we're blessed enough to be kind of shielded from that. But there is no promise it's going to stay like that in our children's generation. My children's generation. 
So we need to consider the possibility of one day, if you haven't already, to experience affliction for your master. And embrace it as God's will when the time comes. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for this time to open up your word and expound it. Thank you for Galatians and the lessons that Paul would have us learn from Galatians. Pray that we all be passionate about you. Pray that we will have the mindset of affliction being part of the Christian life. Help us, Lord, to be bold. Help us to be true to your word. Help us to love people enough to look for opportunities to share the gospel. Help us to do your will from the heart, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.